Last week we started a brand new series called Soundtrack, where we are, as I mentioned earlier, going through some key psalms. And if you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, maybe you've heard about it in the past, maybe you understand, hey, it's, you know, in the middle of the Bible, or it's these, I've heard somebody quote psalms before. It literally is uh, a gathering of the greatest hits of that day. Uh, These are songs that people used to sing, uh, songs that when they gathered, they would sing. They would sing in their home. It was uh, songs about uh, life, songs about the joys of life, the trials of life, songs about who God is, songs about questions that we had for God, their ballads, love songs, all kind of songs are in here. Uh, if you, you know, basically said, let's go and make a collection of the 100 greatest hits over the, the last 100 years and put those into one book, that's kind of what Psalms is of that day in that, in that Bible time. And as they would listen to these songs and sing them in their homes and sing them in, in the public gatherings and at the synagogue, they would do things in people's lives, just like songs do for us. And, and I gave you some examples last week of like songs that were kind of for key moments in our life. And uh, if you were here, you, you, you got a glimpse into my life and some of the songs I remember, like Katie and I's uh, song that you know, we remembered and song when I had a heartache and all those kind of things of moments in our life. But there are also songs that kind of make us move they kind of make us respond in a way. Like as soon as we hear them, we start to think about it. I got a couple of examples with it. Here, here's the first one. See if it just makes you feel anything. You're like, I want to kiss Katie, right? And like start swaying back and forth. I mean, nobody knows the words to this song, but we just kind of do this. Or what about this one? What does this make you want to kind of like, okay, so if I make you, you know, we're all like ready to stand at a wedding, you know, like... Or, or what about what about this one? You know, it's like immediately we, you know, we, if we've got these songs that make us like all of a sudden respond and do something, and that's the kind of song we're looking at today. We're gonna jump in in just a minute to a, a psalm, Psalm 51. And uh, before we get there, we're gonna look at some other passages so uh, you can begin to access that. But last week we looked at Psalm 1, which is kind of the, the title track, which laid the groundwork and said, look, every other song kind of does one of these two things. It plays the melodies of the righteous or it plays the melodies of wickedness. And it kind of said in our, two li- in our life, it's one of those two things that are constantly being played. And we're going to look at that deeper today. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to basically look at different tracks on the melodies of wickedness and tracks on the melodies of righteousness and see how they play out in our life. Now, Psalm chapter 51 is a very powerful and meaningful and deep psalm. And uh, before we read it, I want to give you a little background on the psalm because it's written by King David. King David wrote this psalm, and he wrote many of these psalms, but he wrote this one at a very peculiar time in his life. David already become king over all of Israel. He was God's chosen man to, to be the earthly ruler of the nation of Israel. He'd had many conquests and victories. He was known as a man after God's own heart. He was a faithful man, a man of virtue, a man of commitment, a man that people looked up to. But for some reason, we don't know exactly why, as we pick up this story with David, he had flipped the record over. And he had began to listen to the melodies of wickedness in his life. And it says back in the book of 1 Samuel that at a time when kings should have been off to war, At that time, that was basically their job. He's like, basically, at a time when David should have been at work, he stayed home. When he sent other people to do his job, he stayed home. And he wanted to focus 
on something else. And if you're familiar with his story, he uh, looks out of his, on top of his palace and he looks down on a house below him and he sees a woman out bathing on the roof and her name is Bathsheba. He sees her, he finds her attractive and he basically sends a servant to bring her over. Now, I want you to understand something about this. This was not a casual mistake. This wasn't David strolling out onto his balcony one day and be like, oh my gosh, what's going on over there? He, he knew these people. He knew Bathsheba and her husband. His husband was, her husband was one of the captains in his army. He knew these people. They were his neighbors, literally. If they live close enough that he can step out and look down and see enough to see that the, there's a woman there and she's bathing and she's attractive, and they were close enough neighbors, they're like next-door neighbors. He knew these people. This was not a mistake. This was calculated. He stepped out and he said, you know what? I know Uriah's gone. I know all the other men are kind of gone. I'm it. I know it's about noontime when Bathsheba typically comes out. Why don't I just wander outside and see what's going on? This was a calculated move by David. This wasn't a mistake he stumbled into. And and he takes her and uh, he brings her in and they sleep together. She ends up getting pregnant and tries to cover up his sin. And so he brings Uriah home and he's like, hey, take a break. Why don't you spend the evening with your wife, your wife and your eyes? Like, I couldn't disgrace my men like that. That ought to have gotten David's attention a little bit. And Uriah doesn't sleep with his wife, and he goes back. And so David knows that he can't cover up his sin, and so he sends Uriah literally to the front lines of the fiercest battle. And he knows that it will just be moments in that battle until Uriah dies, and certainly he does. And he takes Bathsheba as his wife and covers his sin. And Biblical scholars would say this kind of went on for about a year before anybody even said anything. Like he took her as a wife. People would even, there were tales of like, oh, look how generous David is. Her husband dies and he takes her as his own. How generous of a man he is. And he's beginning to believe this about himself until he gets confronted. Until Nathan, a prophet of God, comes and confronts him. And I want you to understand before we read this part of Second Samuel is David <clears throat> had been listening to the melodies of wickedness so much in his life. He began to think they were the melodies of righteousness. He began to thought that what he had, he, he began to believe what, believe what other people were saying. Well, yes, look how generous I am. He had forgotten that he was an adulterer and a murderer. And he started believing the opposite about himself. Until the Lord breaks in. And let me read this to you. It'll be on the screen. Second Samuel 12, 1 through 7. And so David's been walking around. He's got a son with Bathsheba now. They're living together. He thinks everything's great. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew with him, and his children he used to eat uh, of a morsel and drink a cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the men who had come to see him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man in the story. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And one of the most famous and challenging verses in the Bible, Nathan says to David, you are this man. And if you skip down to 13, David takes this and he goes, 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He was confronted. And this is where we find David in chapter 51 of Psalms, dealing with this confrontation, dealing with this sin that has been exposed in his life. And we're going to see how he flips the record over and stops playing the melodies of wickedness and starts playing the melodies of righteousness again. But before we do that, I think there's two questions we have to ask ourselves. Is first, what is sin? And then second, why do we sin? Why do we do this? But let's start with this first question about what is sin. This sounds like a very easy question. But sin isn't something that we like to talk about. It's a concept we know is there, but if if we have a choice, we'll talk about something else. We don't like to bring it up. Is sin sin simply the bad things we do? Sin is evil? Sin are mistakes I make? They're shortcomings in my life? Is is that what sin is? I want you to understand sin, sin is actually much deeper and simpler than that. It's not complex. It's not, you know, you don't have to figure it out. It's deep, but it's simple. So let me give you three things to think about when it comes to sin. The first thing is this. When we look at Scripture, here's what we see. First of all, sin isn't a simple list of actions. All right? So it's not this do's and don'ts. And that's what we typically think of when we think of sin. We're like, oh, you know, somebody has committed a sin. They've done bad. And they, they classify an action. We, we talk about the Ten Commandments or commands that are given in the Bible. Things that we shouldn't do. Things that God, our government, our parents, or some authority said is evil, is bad. But if sin is just a list of actions, then let me ask you this question. Why is it that the same action in different contexts can can be considered both good and bad? You walk out on the street here with a gun and you shoot some random person, some stranger you don't know, you're going to jail for that. You get assigned into a battle in a war that our country's in, and you shoot somebody that you don't know in the street, and you can receive a medal for that. It's the same action. It's a different context. And so all of our actions can, you know, if we give ourselves enough time and enough creativity, we can make almost any action justifiable. Justifiable according to the circumstance or the context. And so when we try to label sin as a list, you say, well, I didn't do this, but I sure thought about it but at least I didn't do it. My mind and my thoughts and my heart were consumed with hatred for this person, but I never struck them. I never spoke against them. Is is it still not sin that our attitude is just as rotten even if our actions aren't? It's so easy to try to make sin a list and be like, okay, I'm just not going to do those things, and then I'm good. That's not what Scripture teaches. Sin also is not this. Sin also isn't just a simple label we apply. We love in our culture and in our world to apply label, especially the label of sinner sometimes, to broad groups of people. Somebody we disagree with, somebody that may be a different cultural background than we are, different religion than we are, have a different political view than we do, and we go, look, those are just a bunch of sinners. Right? We just put this label on there, or, or we even throw that label on ourselves sometimes. Like, oh, I'm, just a, you know, I'm just a sinner. I just mess up. That's just who I am. And we wear this label, and it It doesn't carry the weight. If sin is a label, I want you to understand this. It is tattooed on the soul of every human being. It's all part of who we are. We're all broken people. It's a label we all wear, and we're all wearing the label. It ceases to be a a label. It's just part of who we are. We're broken. 
We're all broken. None of us are blameless. But here's what we do. When we try to justify our own actions or we try to minimize our own shortcomings by exposing and elevating the brokenness of other people. So we, we try to hide our label by pointing out the label on other people. And we turn sin into a label. We think, oh, just that, that kind of person, our person who would think this way or do that way, they're a sinner. But it's not just a label. So what is sin? According to Scripture, sin is just a simple lie that we believe. It's a very simple lie. I believe that when you study both human nature and the truths of Scripture, you can boil all of sin down to one word. One word. One concept, one rebellious spirit that gives birth to every evil that we perpetrate in this world. And this one sin that is the father and mother of every evil thing is the sin of pride. It's pride. Pride isn't an action, though it can cause us to do things. Pride isn't a label, though it can cause us to view people in a certain way. Pride instead is a rebellious spirit in our soul that tells us that our desires, our needs, our way of thinking are superior to everyone else's. That's what it boils down to. My way is better than your way. My way is better than God's ways. If you don't believe this, just stop for a minute and think about read the news, read the history of nations, of our world, delve into the depths of your own heart and see that you can't trace every evil action to pride in a way of thinking of some person or some group. We, we allow pride to consume us. We think that we should be God. And this is David. David had a desire and he acted on it. Why does Proverbs sixteen eighteen tell us pride comes before destruction? Because pride is the source of destruction. It is the way that we give into and start moving toward destruction. But what if you sit here and you go, okay, that's great. But what if I don't believe in your God? What if I don't believe in your scripture, your standard, you say, you know, God's truth is the truth, and, you know, but I like my truth better. I like this person's truth better. What if I disagree with the law, the list? You have that freedom. You do. You have the freedom to ignore, to dismiss, to diminish the view of God's truth and elevate your own version of truth. You have that freedom. That's actually a gift from God. But that freedom to do so doesn't make real truth any less powerful or meaningful. And we live... And if we live with this freedom, that I can determine my own truth, then you have to give that freedom to everybody else. You have to give everybody else that same opportunity. So then who gets to determine righteousness and wickedness? You, me, the government, majority of people, historical actions, current cultural trends, popular people, powerful people. This is the problem with thinking that truth is relative or changing. Eventually, what you think is good will be defined as evil by someone else. And what you think is evil will be defined as good by somebody else. And we end up in conflict. This is why ultimate foundational truth must come from something that is outside of us, outside of our own desires, outside of our own pride that leads to destruction. And this is why Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It is the fear of God. It is understanding. When we understand God, it gives us wisdom and insight. PG and I were talking about this yesterday, and it's this idea that, look, I can believe with all my heart that I do not need oxygen to survive. I can believe it. I cannot like it. I can, I can fight against it. I can speak against it. But the minute I close my mouth and I start to fight that oxygen coming into my system, 
my body begins to die. It begins to rebel. It begins to long for it. It finds other ways to try to survive that eventually will lead me to death if I cut myself off from that. And we can do that. We can act like God's truth isn't there. We can act like there is no ultimate foundational truth, that everything is relative, everything is changing, but we're cutting ourselves off from life when we do that, whether we like it or not. Sometimes I don't like it. There are truths of God that I wish I could change. There are truths that I have deep disagreements with sometimes, but I still find when I disagree with those, if I try to cut it off and make my own truth there, then it leads me to destruction. And so let's answer the second question in the remainder of our time is then, why do we embrace this? If it cuts us off from life, then why do we sin? If it's as simple as identifying pride and cutting it out of our life, why, why don't we? Why don't we stamp it out early? Why did, why did David get so deep into it? Why do we get so deep into it? And it's because of this. Sin is sly, subtle, and sweet. It is so sly, so subtle. It doesn't come in and say, Patrick, do, go do something wrong. It just comes in and says, don't do quite what is right. It's very sly, subtle, and sweet. Sin seems harmless, and we often feel no consequence until we have been caught deep, deep in its trap, and we have little chance of escape. It's deadly to our souls, and it is a slippery, slippery slope. And there's a passage in Romans that tells us how we go from righteousness to wickedness, how we walk and journey into what I call the vice of sin, this trap of sin. And I want us to look at this very quickly and see how we walk into this. And the first one is Romans 1, verses 21 through 23. It'll be on the screen, and I'll read it to it. And, and he's talking, this is Paul writing, and he says this. For although they knew God, even though they acknowledged that there was a God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. The first way we do this is we replace God. Replacement. We walk into sin, we walk into this vice and trap of sin by replacing God. Sin grabs a foothold in our life, and we desire our desire for God and his truth is replaced by a desire for something else, anything else. This is not sudden, it is a slow tipping of the scales. And here's how we can start to see it in our life. It says it here. We stop honoring God for who he is. I say, well, yeah, there's a God, but maybe he doesn't know everything. Maybe his ways aren't the best ways. We stop honoring him. We stop thanking him. We stop seeing him as the source of all good things. And we start trusting ourselves more than we trust God. And we start honoring ourselves and who I am and, and viewing myself as God more than he is. When we replace God, here's the key idea. When we replace God as the source of truth and the object of worship in our life, we rob ourselves of the pleasure found in God's grace, love, and mercy. It's literally negated. We, we replace God. We put something in its place. And here's the next thing. Romans uh, 1, 24 and 25. It says, then therefore God gave them up to their lust of their heart and impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And here's what they did next. Here's the way we move. We replace God and then we what's called submission. We submit ourselves to something else. Once you replace God, it's not that we live in freedom. 
Instead, we set up a new master in our life, something new that's going to control our lives. And while we like to think that we want freedom, you and I literally were created to live in submission. We were created that way. And you go, that's horrible. It's not. It's amazing. It's not a bad thing and it's not weak. Because when we live in submission to the actual truth, we're actually living in the way that God designed us. We're living at maximum potential, maximum impact. We're submitting to the, the way that he created us, and so we start to live the most that, he want, that, that we can, over abundant life. But when we submit to something else, here's what happens. When we submit to God, he elevates our life. When we submit to something else, it starts taking from us. It starts taking our joy. And using it as its own. It starts taking the the good things that we think about and use it. It takes. God gives. Every other master takes. And we submit to that. And here's what happens. Our pride will blind us to that. Our impurity will spread. Once we let one part in, it'll it'll take over other parts. And then the desires, these uh, desires other than God will begin to consume our thoughts. And that's addiction. We become addicted to something besides God. We submit to it. You don't have a choice whether or not you'll submit to something, but you do have a choice of what you'll submit to. And that choice always carries a consequence. But then they just didn't, we don't just submit. It says in, in Romans 1, 28 through 31, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave, God gave them up to their debased mind to do uh, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covenant, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithfulness, heartless, ruthless. What a horrible list of things. And here's what we do. We begin to now, instead of having conviction for God, we have conviction for our sin. We start inventing new ways to do evil, it says. We start elevating the things that we should be putting behind us, debased things, and we, we elevate those things. We start having conviction. Our pride teaches us to have conviction for the wrong thing, and we start to lose our shame. We start to think that sin has no consequence, and we start to think that sin has no power. Having conviction to our sins actually leads us to defending our sin and our, our own version of truth with more passion than we defend God and his truth. We start having a conviction for what I believe and for what I think is the right way, which then leads us to the final step, which is confession. Romans 1, 32 says this. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So it's not that they just were doing this their own life. They started spreading this around. They start confessing it to other people. They start to get other people to step into this. And in doing so, we've redefined the truth. We've reordered our lives, and we've removed God's influence. And we start becoming an evangelist for sin. We start becoming an evangelist. We're trying to reach people with a version of the truth that is manipulated and counterfeit and leads to death and destruction. What a slippery slope this is. We replace God submit to a new master, have new convictions formed in our life, and now we are out propagating this lie. You ever found yourself there? You ever got caught in that trap? Maybe it's been in a relationship. Maybe it's been in the way you, uh, your integrity. Maybe it's been in 
the ways you just think about who God is. And this is where David found himself. And he got confronted with it. And what I love about God and Nathan in this story is they just didn't confront David. They revealed the truth to him. They said, look, here's your life. Doesn't it look nice? And it's an old copy worn out of counterfeit truth, black and white. And then they held up the real truth of God. Say, this is, don't you remember? See, our job, like if we're, if we're Nathan, we see somebody caught in this trap, our job is not just to go confront them about sin and say, you're a sinner, you're a loser, you need to get right with God. Our goal is to present the truth back to them, to hold a mirror up to their soul and point them back in a direction. And that's what God does here. And here's what I love about God and, and what we see in Psalm 51 is God comes to where we are. He comes right to where we are. And he says, I'll meet you here. You're out here confessing truth. Let's start with confession then. This is what happens in Psalms 51. This is the journey back to virtue. This is David. He says this, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The first step in moving back toward virtue is the last step that we took which is confession, but it's a different kind of confession. It's a confession to God about our sin. It's a confession that it's not saying, here's what I believe. It's saying, God, I want to go back. I want your truth. Confession isn't for God's sake. It is for the healing of our souls. And when we confess our sin to God, when we name it and we speak it and we say, I am in a bad place, I have, I have made a mistake, I had stepped off a slippery slope and I've gone farther and I've done more than I've ever wanted to do, it starts with confession and that's inviting God into our brokenness. God is not surprised by your brokenness. He's not disappointed in you. He doesn't hate you because of it. He is longing to meet you in your brokenness with a simple invitation. Admit the depth of your sin and accept ownership of your rebellion. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't blame it on Satan or bad influence. You made a choice, and it led to a slope you didn't want to go to. As much as God hates sin, I want you to hear this. He doesn't hate it because of what it does to him. The fact that you chose something over him. God hates sin because of what it does to you and to me. He doesn't want us to end up here. Broken, a slippery slope leading toward death and destruction. God is always ready to rescue. And what does God do next after confession? What did David model in verse 5 and 6? He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, yet you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. He changed his conviction. He began to have new convictions. When we're convicted of our sins, it means that we know our truth isn't the truth. We embrace the holiness and authority of God and let go of our prideful, entitled spirit of rebellion. When we have conviction of our sin, here's what, it's not that we just feel sorry or we feel bad. True conviction acknowledges that we are sinful. Everybody here is sinful. It's okay. It's not that it's okay that we stay in it, but it's okay to acknowledge that I am a sinner. It's not weak. The, the more you hide it, the more it grows. 
So acknowledge, con- conviction is saying, I'm convicted. I have a sinful nature, but it's acknowledging God is the source of truth. God is the source of healing. And acknowledge that I have a tendency to slide. And I need God's help to move me back in this direction. Conviction isn't just calling sin, sin. It is also calling God's truth, real truth. It's not just pointing out what's bad, but it's pointing back to what is right. So we begin with confession, then we have conviction of our sin, and then what do you think the next step is? We begin to submit again, a new submission. This is what 51 verses 7 and through 11, I'm not going to read the whole part, but basically David is crying out to God, do all these things in me. I'm, I'm yours. You have freedom to purge me, to clean me, to make me whole, to renew me. We must make a conscious choice to submit ourselves to the truth of God and say, I'm yours. Purge me, wash me, heal me, create in me, keep me clean. Sin, oh, I want you to hear this very clearly. Sin always leaves a stain in our lives. But God is willing to do the dirty work of restoration. He is so willing if we simply ask. And that's what submission is. It's submitting to God's healing and restoring nature. You know, we could serve a God who submitting to him would bring justice and anger and wrath. But God has done an amazing thing. to say when we submit to him, the price of your sin is paid. And what he does now is restore us to bring us back. It's an amazing truth. And then we close with this. How do we do that? We, we confess, have new convictions, and we submit. And just like we originally replaced God, here's what we do. We replace him on the center. We put him back. We, we gain complete freedom from this vice, this trap that, that we caught in with sin when we remove ourselves and remove our prideful idols and place God back at the center as the focal point of our source of pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. And this is what verse 12 and 13 say, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit that I may teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Do you see what happened? When we ended up over here, we ended up trying to get people to come to our version of the truth. We were getting people to caught in our own sin trap. And he says, we journey back as we confess and have new convictions and we submit and then we replace God. Where does it end? We end up telling people, oh my gosh, there's forgiveness for you. There is healing for you. There is hope for you. We become spokespersons for the real truth that's out there. Replacing God at the centerpiece of our lives is a constant and consistent choice that we have to make. So my question for today is this. Which journey are you on? Are you heading toward vice, toward a trap, via our pride? Are you heading toward freedom by virtue found in God's truth? Are you moving back? Are you confessing that, God, I have sinned and I'm convicted of it and I'm submitting to you and now I'm placing you back in my life? Are you moving away from the truth on this slippery slope? I'll tell you three things. Don't think that you're too clever doubt, scheme, sin. You're not. Nobody is. Sin and Satan are the ultimate schemers. You cannot scheme them. You're not clever enough. Don't think that you're too aware to not be blinded by sin. Now, I, you know, I've, been, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. No, you haven't. 
You can be blinded by sin. Just like that. If you're not careful, if you're not constant. Don't think you're too smart not to be tricked by sin. To think, oh, I don't fall for that anymore. Ah, that's not going to get me again. It, it will. It's a trap. As soon as we start to think we're too clever, we're too aware, and we're too smart, what has creeped back into our life? Pride. And pride leads to destruction and this path. Stay away from sin. Constantly be moving back. We, to do this, we need God and we need one another. This isn't a journey you have to do alone. The quickest way you and I slide down this slope is to be alone. If you don't have somebody who says, oh, you know, let me help you back up. Let me walk with you. Even if you're at the bottom of the valley, to have somebody throw you a lifeline like God did with Nathan to David. He said, let's draw you back. We need one another in this journey. You see somebody caught in sin? Don't leave them. Don't ridicule them. Walk with them. You see yourself caught in sin? Call out for help. Reach out and say, I need someone else. Let's pray together.